Okay. A little bit later in the episode, I'm going to tell you more about the hormone fixer because I know you're dying to know. This little bad boy supplement that I created, if I do say so myself, is amazing at so many things, so many benefits. So it raises your natural testosterone, ladies, that GSD hormone. It helps with weight loss. It helps improve insulin sensitivity. It helps with anti-aging. It increases your own growth hormone, the anti-aging hormone that helps with the wrinkles and the stamina, energy, focus, brain. It also helps with your mood and lowers your response to stress. So you're just going to have to wait a little bit more and we'll tell you more about it. The Hormone Fixer. Are you finally at your wit's end where you are tired of dealing with doctor after doctor? Maybe you've spent thousands on integrative or functional practitioners that have not helped you at all because they don't know the thyroid and hormones. They're not even testing properly. So come work with myself and my team. We prescribe to all 50 states and parts of Canada. I have you covered. I've been building this team for years so that I could help you no matter where you are. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, book a free application call. We're going to go over your current health situation, what worked, what hasn't worked, all the things. And then we will pair you up with the right program for you where we will do it all. You will come out the other side of the program, totally optimized, getting your life back. You're going to recognize the person you see in the mirror again. Doesn't that sound absolutely amazing? Well, it might sound... Like you don't even believe it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will take good care of you. So click the link in the show notes, book a call today, and we'll be talking to you soon. My very special guest today is also a dear friend, Cynthia Thurlow. She is a nurse practitioner, CEO, and founder of the Everyday Wellness Project, an international speaker with over 9.6 million views for her second TEDx talk, Intermittent Fasting Transformational Technique. She is just a powerhouse woman, powerhouse. With over 20 years experience in health and wellness, Cynthia is globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and nutritional health and has been featured on ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, CW, Medium, Entrepreneur, and The Megan Kelly Show. She was listed in Yahoo Finance as one of the 21 founders changing the way we do business. Oh, it just touches my heart. You go, Cynthia. Cynthia hosts the Everyday Wellness Podcast, considered one of 21 podcasts to expand your mind in 2021 and 2022 by Business Insider. Her mission is to educate women on the benefits of intermittent fasting and overall holistic health and wellness so they feel empowered to live their most optimal lives. You guys are gonna love this. You've been asking me about intermittent fasting for a long time. We touch on it here and there. Now I am bringing you the expert of experts, Miss Cynthia Thurlow. All right, Cynthia, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing bits and pieces and your knowledge of your new book coming out. I just, I, I everyone that is listening needs this information. We were talking a little bit off camera and I said, you know, my, my listeners, my patients, my group, they've been yearning for mm -hmm. intermittent fasting information and I give them what I can, but of course I'm learning from you because you specialize in intermittent mm -hmm. fasting for women. So thank you so much for being on and welcome. 
Absolutely. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. And and to your point, I think that in so many ways, women need someone to stand up for them and to talk about the unique characteristics that make us very different from men and how to harness the strategies of intermittent fasting for our personal lives. And, And to do it, like I always say, I love men. I'm the only female in my house, but we need to fast differently than men do. There's no question. There's absolutely no question. And and I've seen that even in my practice, you know, back mm-hmm. when intermittent fasting first was the buzz and people would do any, even I would do it. Mm-hmm. And I had this gut feeling like, oh, this might not be right. I'm not doing it the right way, or this might be not right for absolutely everybody, or we have to tweak things. So yeah, you're bringing us that information. So that's wonderful. Yeah. And you have a new book coming out, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. This is what we need. I know. I know. And, and you know, it's it's ironic that being middle-aged myself, now all of a sudden I, I view the world from a very different lens. And this book really came out of a desire to help provide women with literally a blueprint of how to integrate fasting and do it successfully. Because- a lot of the people in the fasting space, and this is no slight on them because some of them are personal friends, but you can't apply the way that you fast with men to women. We are far more complicated and that's a good thing. That's what makes us really unique and really special. And if I could tell you how many clinicians just like yourself have told me, this is exactly the book I need because I myself need a resource, but I also need something to suggest to my patients and to my clients. And so this has really been a tremendous passion project on my end, for sure. And this came out of your own struggle and people will read this when they, when they get the book, but tell us a little bit about your pain to purpose story mm-hmm. and how you dove into intermittent fasting and doing it the right way for women. Yeah. I mean, I think it really stemmed from, and this applies to anyone, perimenopause, the five to 10 years preceding menopause is really a wake up call for women. And I think anyone that has a demanding job is a parent, uh, has a spouse who travels over exercises, under exercises, doesn't eat the right food. Maybe it's too low carb. I mean, the, the list could go on and on and on perimenopause is when you figure it out. And so I am very attuned to my body and probably was the most fit. I had been up until that point, early forties, uh, had a year where we bought and sold two houses. My husband was doing a tremendous amount of international travel. I had a very, very stressful job. I mean, I can say this now really fervently that working in cardiology has been, you know, one of my favorite things that I've done as a clinician, but gosh, I mean, I look back retrospectively on the amount of stress, you know, managing acutely critically ill patients, sometimes flying them to other hospitals to get procedures. And I worked very autonomously alongside my physician peers for which I am grateful. Uh, But I also had two, you know, two boys at home who were young and required a lot of hands-on care. And I probably wasn't sleeping enough. I probably was too low carb. I was probably doing too intense exercise and that's something that all of us have kind of had ingrained. You know, you work out harder, you you, re, you restrict your calories more, you maybe you, you dial into the latest like nutritional fad. And so what it set me up for was I literally was so tired one day I couldn't get out of bed. And it was only when I dove down this rabbit hole that I started to realize, okay, uh, this is the beginning of perimenopause that no one had told me what to expect. I went to a leading research institution in the United States, had both an undergrad and a graduate degree from this university on the East Coast, 
I'd like to think I'm a very smart, capable individual and no one had ever prepared me for what perimenopause would happen. It's really reverse puberty. And so it wasn't until I hit this wall, I started gaining weight. I was exhausted. Um, I had no energy, like to the point where even taking a walk in my neighborhood was just exhausting. And I just felt bloated and frumpy. And I, I don't know how else to describe it. Frumpy or fluffy. Those are two yeah. uh, ways to describe our bodies that I think if we're speaking of our bodies in that way, it's certainly not in a, in a positive light. And so I, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to work some very talented functional medicine clinicians who helped me get some of the answers that I needed. But part of my journey back to health and, you know, balancing hormones was I stumbled upon intermittent fasting and I thought it sounded a little crazy because it was very different from the information I had been trained with, which was you ate mini meals and you ate snacks and you stoked your metabolism and, oh yes, heart healthy grains and, you know, low animal-based protein, lots of carbs. It's completely the antithesis, you know, as I stumbled into figuring out what would work best for my body and almost immediately, probably due to the fact that I had these very low insulin levels and, you know, was fueling my body with a special type of ketones, so much mental clarity, so much energy that even though initially I didn't see weight loss, it really made me realize that this is something that I needed to look more closely at. And from there, I started integrating it into the work that I was doing with my own clients. And I pivoted away from traditional allopathic medicine and started my business. And that's really where I started to feel that it was a, a strategy that would benefit quite a few women. And, and so that's that's the rabbit hole I dove down, but I'm one that I'm very grateful for. And so when you talk about pain to purpose, my own process of figuring out that middle age is reverse puberty, uh, recognizing the hormonal fluctuations that were happening with progesterone and estrogen, and why all of a sudden my sleep was terrible and my periods were really heavy. Uh, when I started to peel back those layers, I was like, wow, this is information that all women deserve to have. All women need to have way before they go through this stage in their lives so they can be empowered. Because one of the things that I found really frustrating was, as one example, when I went to my GYN for my annual exam and I was talking to her about having heavy periods, her first response was, before anything else, let's try you on synthetic hormones. And I said, no. And she said, well, let's think about doing an IUD. And I said, no. And then, you know, the third option was let's do an ablation. And I said, forget about it. And she said, well, if you just don't want to deal with any of that, then we can just remove your your uterus. And I said, time out, no way. (laughs) So a lot of women end up on my doorstep, my proverbial doorstep, and they've already started one of those therapies and they don't realize there are options beyond that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned in the book too, that you also got the typical response that we talk Mm -hmm. about on this podcast all the time. You're getting older, just learn Mm -hmm. to live with it. That drives me crazy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It makes, it makes me sad because what does that say to women younger than us that they hit a certain age and they were supposed to just accept things as they are. Right. And I always say, I don't believe in limiting, but like, I actually get chills when I think about it. I don't believe nor will I embrace limiting beliefs about aging. Like, will things change? Absolutely. Do we have to accept being exhausted and tired and frumpy and fluffy and, you know, not getting good sleep? Absolutely not. It just requires a bit more effort and work. And if you're working with someone that isn't willing to do the work with you, then you need to find somebody else. Yep. I've done that. I unabashedly, unapologetically have hired and fired different people to work with over the years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. My, my biggest saying is that if, if your doctor or practitioner won't even do the tests that you want, 
then it's time to get a new doctor. Like start yeah, yeah. there because if you go beyond that, you're going to get, you're just getting older, learn to live with it, deal with it. Oh, you're mm-hmm. a woman. That's another good one. So yep. yeah. Well, well, and what's unfortunate is I think back to even when I went to my 30th high school reunion, which was a couple of years ago. And I just recall like some people were doing really well, like happy, health, looked healthy. And then some people were like, what am I doing wrong? Cause I don't look like you. And I said, well, you know, we're all individuals, but I just said, you know, I just, when I look around this room, I see a lot of very inflamed individuals who probably have some hormonal imbalances that are driving the way that they look and feel, and it doesn't have to be that way. And I I think the other thing that I find so concerning is over the 20 plus years, I've been a nurse practitioner, just the degree of metabolic inflexibility. You know, I think it was a study from 2018 talked about 88.2% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. Now I'm sure it's not any better given the pandemic. And I just think that gives us all opportunities to use strategies. It doesn't have to be fasting per se, but change something that you're doing because you can navigate middle age and beyond and do it in a way where you're still embracing doing a lot of things you enjoy doing. Maybe you have to tweak your diet. I mean, I'll be the first person to say that uh, there are things about my my diet now that you know humor my teenage boys who have ridiculous metabolisms and are super metabolically healthy. Right. I just say you know once a year I have pie and I I enjoy the pie on that day and then I don't eat pie again for another year <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But that's okay. <laughs> but on so many levels, knowing knowing and and empowering women to understand that the answers are out there, they have to find the right people. But also on your own, being able to say you know. I want to be able to incorporate strategies that I can do for the rest of my life. Absolutely. That that's the key. And I think if you if mm-hmm. like you said if you can if we can arm women before they go into perimenopause. Mm-hmm. So you're not going in blind going what the hell's going on with my body? It's freaking out. And you have those tools to implement mm-hmm. immediately at the first sign of symptoms. I think it's it's going to it's going to produce a better result mm-hmm. down the road where aging won't be feared. Yeah. And it won't be kind of demonized as, oh, I'm in menopause. That's horrible. So we can actually embrace it and become better through it. I agree. And And I think there's so much shame about aging. I think that we have a culture that largely focuses on youth. And, and I can understand why. I mean, youth is beautiful. I mean, I look at my kids' skin, they're 16 and 14. I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but by the same token, we need to embrace the fact that, you know, we've lived incredible lives and we have so much to still offer. And so if, if women are using age as a barometer, like purely just a chronologic age, I think that's really setting yourself up for disappointment because there's so much more. I mean, I can tell you the stage I'm at right now I have never been more confident. I have never been more self-assured. There's something to be said for that. But to your point, I do think I would love to be able to have younger women, you know, women that are 30, 32, 35, being able to feel like they have a roadmap to navigate the things they need to do, the work they need to do. In fact, I have a group program that I teach. It's only 20 people in this group because we offer a lot of diagnostic testing. And I have three out of 20 that are in their like early thirties and largely because they want answers and, you know, kind of conventional allopathic medicine hasn't been able to give them the the answers that they need. And so it's, it's been really insightful, but yeah, I would have loved to have known these things at 20 years ago. I mean, it would have made sure that I, took better care of myself in my thirties. And by no means was I like not a healthy person, but 
trying to get by on not enough sleep and too much hardcore exercise and not enough, you know, self-care. I mean, we put that at the bottom of the list as women oftentimes. Oh yeah. I've been there. Well, we've <laughs> all done that to ourselves at one time or another. Yep. Absolutely. And you mentioned in the book that you did have a, a thyroid problem. You said your thyroid mm-hmm. had tanked, your hormones had tanked. So were you actually able to not go on thyroid medication and balance all of your hormones as you go into each hormone in the book, which we'll dive into today, balance your hormones through mm-hmm. intermittent fasting without medication? Well, I tried initially. Okay. So my my functional medicine provider laughed and said, I know you, you're going to try to do this on your own and I will give you a bit of time. And so after six months, because the initial thought process was your antibodies are negative, your mercury is really high. This is probably mercury offsetting your thyroid receptors. Let's address the mercury that should probably improve things. And it didn't. And after six months, I had addressed the mercury and I was so exhausted. I could not, I mean, I was struggling to get through the day and it wasn't so bad in the morning, but by the middle of the afternoon, I was really, really tired. And so then it was, you know, let's talk about options. And so, yes, I tried. And ironically, I later found out that I probably always had negative antibodies because I've been gluten-free for over 10 years. And so I probably have Hashimoto's, but if you, again, if you don't fit into the bucket of you have to have positive antibodies, people don't diagnose you with Hashimoto's. So I've had this you know, um, effectively, um, they've told me they, you know, you have this strange variant of hypothyroidism. So yes, I started medication and I initially had a lot more energy. And then, uh, as probably many of your listeners know, with all the changes that have occurred over the past year with medication, I went down a, almost a year long rabbit hole trying to find an alternative, but yes, I ultimately ended up on medication. I feel better largely on medication, it was the first medication I've ever had to take every day. And so that was a bit of a corundum to wrap my head around because I I try to emphasize the need, of course, before not wanting to be on daily medication, but I think there's no shame in taking hormonal supplementation or hormonal medication, because frankly, uh, I intend to have lots of energy. I want to sleep well. I want to have plenty of opportunities use my brain. And, and for me that the fatigue was just debilitating. And I, I don't think I've ever experienced fatigue like that before. Yeah. Well, here's the beauty of it though. If you are on, and, and I say the same thing, it, I, thyroid hormone replacement therapy or mm-hmm. bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, when we're replacing hormones that are no mm-hmm. longer being properly made, that's not, I don't even put it in the same category as right. medication, quote unquote, yep. nothing yep. wrong with that. But no, I mean, the beauty of your book is that whether you have crested that hill and you are now on thyroid medication mm-hmm. the rest of your life, as am I, as of many of the listeners, you can actually improve. You can go mm-hmm. one step further because we know the thyroid's the master. It's going to start affecting sex hormones, mm-hmm. hunger hormones, like you go into, into the book. It, it, it's, it's going to benefit us all the way around. So even if you're mm-hmm. on medication, guess what? You could actually get better and go yeah. 10 steps higher than you are right now. And you you might not even be able to imagine feeling better, but you actually can. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to understand. I mean, there is no shame in hormone replacement therapy. It's gotten a really bad rap. It's gotten such a bad rap that I'm actually, I'm organizing with my team some content around this because it's just stupefying that a study or studies from the early 2000 time period convinced an entire generation of clinicians and women that hormone replacement therapy is a bad idea. And, uh, you know, as I start navigating 
thinking about sex hormone replacement. And as I've started that journey, I can tell you right now that when you really look at the data, when you really look at the data and you really look at the studies and you talk to, you know, experts in this field, um, we have really missed opportunities to serve women. And so I, I kind of feel like this is going to be another platform that I will stand on. Not because I, I think there's anything wrong. I think the perpetuity of taking epidemiologic or observational studies and the media kind of propagating bad information. And yes, I will point a finger at the media because mm-hmm. I feel like in many ways they've done another disservice to women. Yep. But there was a podcast I was listening to Peter Atias yesterday And these two clinicians were talking about there is no way that men would have tolerated what women have been put through because they were talking about how um, kind of the the allopathic way 50 plus years ago was you take the ovaries. If that doesn't work, you take part of the hypothalamus. If that doesn't work, you take part of the adrenals. And you start to think like, what's what's still working if you keep taking things out? So I, I think on so many levels, if you're listening to this and you know, I want to say that we're all bio individuals and um, I just want women to be empowered to know they have options, whatever that option you decide is right for you, do it with uh, information and be able to have a good discussion with your clinician and feel empowered. Don't feel scared. Don't make a decision based on fear. Make the decision based on all of the things that make you special and unique and what resonates and feels best to you. I agree. That was very well said. And you're right. Oh, I don't think men would not no. deal with at all what we go through. Sorry. No. I'm just I'm just calling it like I see it. No. Yeah. My poor husband, he gets to hear, you know, when I'm, you know, doing research on something and I walk out and I'm like, did you know? Yeah. He said, okay, here we go. And I'm like, this is, I, I am the only female in my house that includes all my menagerie of animals. I'm very pro male. This is not anti-male, right. but it is talking about some degree of this patriarchy in which women are the, the active kind of conduits to uh, things that are have largely been incredibly unfair and, and unjustified. And so that, that's what I kind of feel like I'm like, that might just have to be a sword I die on that making sure women understand that they have options. Mm-hmm. That's a good sword though. That's a good mm-hmm. sword. Yeah. And the other thing that women deal with more, let's just face it, we deal with weight gain more. Now it's the, it's mm-hmm. kind of shifting a little bit if you start looking around at the general population. You know, mm-hmm. men are getting more estrogenic, more beer bellies, more man boobs. But in general, we are more sensitive to the mm-hmm. weight gain. So yeah. your book actually goes into how to trigger your weight control hormones. Mm-hmm. So can mm-hmm. you expand on that? Cause I find that very interesting that intermittent fasting has this kind of power. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it really goes to satiety, you know, it's, it's starting from the process of, um, you know, restructuring our macros, you know, we're conditioned, many meals, snacks, it's all okay. When you're fasting, what you're really trying to do is manage and mitigate insulin. And so you want to keep insulin, uh, low throughout the day, because that allows you to tap into fat stores. And that allows you to, um, you know, have all this mental clarity and beta hydroxybutyrate, which crosses the blood brain barrier or gives you all this mental clarity, but it's also the recognition that we have to adjust how we eat and that improves the satiety piece. And so let me explain that for listeners. Satiety is mitigated oftentimes by adjusting your macros. So protein, fat, and carbohydrates, we're very carbohydrate focused culture, bread, pasta, lots of it all the time. You're never satiated. I don't care who you are. I have teenagers. Let me tell you, I tell them all the time, you're eating a bowl of pasta. You have to have some protein on it. I don't care if you're eating the pasta, but you have to have protein. Protein is what is satiating, which, you know, triggers those receptors in our gut that 
communicate with our brain that tells our brain, you are full. It's time to stop eating. You sit down and eat a steak. I bet you you're not going to go then have the popcorn, the ice cream, the chocolate afterwards. You have a bowl of pasta. You have a lot of carbohydrates. It'll spike your insulin. Your insulin will come back down quickly and you're just going to start craving more food. Whereas if you have, you know, a ribeye steak, you have a piece of duck, you have a piece of bison. Uh, I guess I'm focused on animal-based protein. And that is something I think is really important for women. Yes. You're going to be satiated. You're going to be full. It's going to balance your blood sugar. Um, if you've got the healthy fats already in the meat, you don't need more fats. That's one of the misnomers about ketogenic diets in particular. But I remind people that these hunger and satiety hormones, leptin and ghrelin are impacted by so many things, but particularly sensitive to the quality of the foods that we're eating. So, you know, I think about the standard American diet is one really good example of this. So if you go to McDonald's and you are eating highly inflammatory seed oils, you're eating highly processed foods, uh, you are not going to be as satiated. Your, your body's not going to trigger the same communication patterns between your stomach and your brain to tell you you're full. That's why this is a good example. When my kids were much younger, I think we stopped off to use like the McDonald's restroom and my son, who at the time was probably four or five, just commented on how many, how much food was in front of this family. And I was explaining to him, I said, there are things that go on, you know, neurochemically in our bodies that are not working functionally and optimally when someone has a lot of fat tissue on their bodies. And so this is a whole tangential conversation, but I want to get to the satiety piece. We know that when you are eating less often and you are eating, fueling your body with the proper macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, I always say non-starchy carbs, low glycemic berries, you're going to be satiated and keep your blood sugar stabilized and you will hit those satiety signals. So you will be able to go longer in between meals. So whether it's you went from eating a standard American diet and a couch potato to pulling snacks. Now you're just doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Then you pull out breakfast. And so really keeping those, um, those hunger hormones at bay and, and, you know, really telling your brain, like, I'm not starving myself. That's an important misnomer that people have this perception that the reason why people have success with intermittent fasting is because they're restricting calories. That's not what it's about. There's neurocognitive, neurochemical regulation that goes on in the body when we're in a fasted state. And so those counter-regulatory hormones help with blunting hunger hormones. And, and hunger is something that's cyclical. This is something that most people eat for emotional reasons, as opposed to actually being really hungry. They could just be dehydrated. Maybe they need water. Maybe they need to go take a walk. Uh, maybe they need to go do a workout. And they're really not actually hungry. But we are a nation that is so overfed we don't even differentiate between true intrinsic hunger and boredom. We don't even differentiate anymore because we eat constantly. I think the recent study I, I presented in October, and I was talking about a, a study by Sachin Panda and Sachin Panda uh, and his team, they had people using an app. So really easy to record with what they're eating. And the people on the high end of meal frequency were eating 10 times a day. What do you think 10 times a day of insulin secretion is doing to your hormones, to your blood sugar, to your satiety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's really this beautiful kind of symphony that goes on between hormones when our bodies are properly fueled, when we're eating with less meal frequency, and you really can't appreciate that if you're doing what the most people are doing right now, which is eating frequently, eating the wrong foods. Um, I'm not referring to Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, right. everyone gets a pass on Thanksgiving. Let's be clear about that. But really important for people to just be tapped into these intrinsic ways as our bodies are designed to thrive. This is not woo woo. 
this is science. This is actual research that's been done to demonstrate how valuable eating less often can be for balancing hormones amongst a myriad of other benefits. Absolutely. And I think women in their forties and fifties, like Mm -hmm. we are, we were entrenched in the fitness magazines, the shape magazines, muscle and fitness hers that would say, eat every two hours, keep your metabolism up. And now we know that's not the case. We know Mm -hmm. that was false information you know, information and, and science in the nutritional realm and the health realm is constantly changing and constantly evolving and we have to evolve with it. Yeah. So we now know, we can look at the studies, we can say that when you eat six times a day, 10 times a day, you're literally mm-hmm. on this insulin roller mm-hmm. coaster. You're spiking that fat storage hormone yeah. when it's, I, I always call insulin Jekyll and high. Like we need it for yeah. life, yeah. but too much of it, it is the fat storage hormone. So you're, you're mm-hmm. spiking that 10 times a day, six times a day. And then you're wondering why you can't lose weight. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it comes down to just that. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because there's definitely the, there are two camps. There's the calories in calories out camp mm-hmm. and there there's, there's the hormone camp. And I tell people all the time, when you've evolved beyond the seco calories in calories out yep. when you've evolved beyond that because you really have to evolve beyond that mindset because that's what i was trained in eat less exercise more you know it's kind of that con- that concept when you've evolved beyond that and it makes sense like insulin like i think about ben bickman who's this incredible insulin researcher and i think about all the work he's done and i'm like ben i'm so glad that I don't just have clinicians to refer to, but I have like, you're an actual insulin researcher. You're doing the work Mm -hmm. and insulin is high. Insulin levels are tied to just about every disease that we can think of. And so I agree with you very much. This Jekyll and Hyde dual edged sword concept of telling people we need insulin, but too much insulin is not good for anyone. And, And all you have to do is travel. Like right now, people are probably not traveling. Like they had been before travel outside the United States. I'm always stunned at how thin people are. Even when I come back to the United States, I'm always like, wow. And so we have been telling our patients for years and years and years, the wrong stuff. And there are still people, I know this because people will come to me and tell me this on social media. Mm-hmm. My doctor doesn't know what intermittent fasting is. I was like, that's totally okay. That's totally okay. They may not know, but you know, two years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was this massive write-up about fasting. You know, Dr. Mark Matson's this incredible researcher at, at Johns Hopkins and, you know, he kind of went through all the data. I think it was he and Walter Longo mm-hmm. went through all the information because New England Journal of Medicine kept saying, we are being asked by our clinicians to give them more information about fasting. Mm-hmm. And so what an incredible opportunity we would have if we were having those discussions when appropriate with people that w- could be able to use the strategy and use it effectively. It's like lost opportunities. It makes me sad because- our, our country is a huge point is kind of heading really in the wrong direction. And I don't so much see it in, in the, the friends that my kids hang out with because they're athletes and they're very active, right. but definitely from information that I'm seeing other clinicians are sharing within their practices about children and obesity. And you just think, you know, this might be the first generation of children that is not going to be as healthy as their parents. And that to me is profoundly sad. It's very sad. And, and I think you and I get, I, I can speak for myself, I guess I get sucked into the premise that everybody knows 
about XYZ. So everybody knows about intermittent fasting. I remember, I mean, you can rewind 25 years ago, Dr. Dan Pompa and I were working mm-hmm. in the same office and he was practicing intermittent fasting back then just because yeah. it's biblical. I mean, we, we see fasting in the, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like common sense to me mm-hmm. when the intermittent fasting movement kind of surged a little mm-hmm. bit a few years ago. But I forget that some people don't really understand it. And going back yeah. to your point, some people think, oh, you're losing weight because you're not eating. No, mm-hmm. if you looked at the calories that I consume in my eating window, whatever that is for whatever day, mm-hmm. they are usually the same, whether I'm yeah. eating within a four-hour window or an eight-hour mm-hmm. window. And they're a lot more than what the average woman yeah. would take in. If the, the average woman would go, what? You're taking 2,500 calories? Yeah. Oh, I can do Because they're still stuck back in the 1990s of calorie yeah. counting too. yeah. Well, and even in the group programs that we run, a, a common question, how many calories should I be de- eating a day? Yep. And I almost want to cry because we've done women such a disservice. And what are they doing there? They're eating maybe 1200 calories a day from what they share with me. They're doing two uh, Orange Theory fitness workouts a day. Yep. They don't sleep. Their hair is falling out. Their thyroid is thrashed. And I just, I always say to them, I'm like, listen, you got it. You got to change what you're doing. If it's not working, you have to change something. I mean, that is without question. And so I, I tell people all the time that I eat so strategically now because I know what works well for my body, but that may not be that that's exactly the same nutritional focus for someone else. Because some people hear how I eat and they're like, oh my God, I don't know how you do that. I'm like, no, I'm very happy in my little gluten-free dairy-free world. Very, very happy. Yep. I feel good. And that's what's important. Now, if you tolerate dairy, you do dairy. If you tolerate grains, probably you don't, but okay, right. you do that. Yeah. Um, and so I just remind people, I'm like, part of it is this whole concept of bioindividuality, figure out what works for you. But what most people should not be doing is focusing on these carbohydrate heavy diets. You really need to be protein, healthy fats, non-starchy carbs, and then strategically adding in carbs. Like yesterday I did a leg day, mm-hmm. um, which I know you can appreciate every time I, I see Amy, she's working out. She's very, very dedicated uh, I had a, a, had a higher carb day come home. I had some sweet potatoes with lunch, which I don't like. I'm probably one of the few people that will willing admit. I do not like sweet potatoes, but I eat them because they're good for my body. And so, you know, I then had, you know, did my other higher carb things during the day. And then at dinner, I actually didn't have per se heavy carbs in my dinner. I had vegetables and I had steak because we don't do Turkey, mm-hmm. but I had apple pie for dessert and I enjoyed every single bite. Yep. watched my blood sugar go up and down on my glucometer and my CGM. Yep. And then I just said, I'm done. I don't need to do that again for a year. And so a lot of, a lot of what we recommend and we suggest is for people to experiment. And that makes people uncomfortable because they're so used to being told what to do, that the concept of trial and error is kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But you do a beautiful job though, in your book of guiding people through their mm-hmm life stages through the process of, you know, what do I eat, how to mm-hmm. ease into it, what supplements to you. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really laid out to, to be kind of foolproof in your book. Oh, thank you. Well, and I hope so. I mean, it's really designed to empower women to use intermittent fasting as a good strategy. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that's important because I get asked all the time, you know, what supplements do you take? And I always say, don't take the supplements I take per se, you know, let's think strategically, like what are the things you need to do to have success with fasting? And so those are outlined in the book. And then talking a lot about, you know, the macros piece, which 
people freak out. I'm like, macros are not that complicated in the sense that be focused on your animal-based protein. Like that's the most important thing to do. People and mostly women are under eating animal-based protein. Yes. And it's very hard. Let me be clear. Cause there's probably a few vegetarians listening. Um, it's very hard to be lower carb and also successfully, you know, hit your protein macros. And that's because most of the complete proteins that are plant-based are either high in cal, you know, they're, they're nutrient dense or they're going to be high in carbs. And I oftentimes will suggest to people lower carb, if you're kind of leaning into fasting, because the average American consumes 250 to 300 grams of carbohydrate a day. And they're not like going overboard with a sweet potato. They're eating chips and, you know, ice cream and, uh, you know, fruit flavored beverages. In fact, I was laughing uh, today. I posted on Instagram. I was in the gym yesterday and I'm in a new city. And so we've been navigating new gyms and I'm sure you can appreciate this. We haven't found a great one. So we had to compromise. And so I'm in the women's side of the gym just because it was less crowded. And up in front of me was this thing. It says, have this fruit. It's like a fruit drink. And I'm like, seriously in a gym. And so it says it's fruit juice with stevia and sugar. Yeah. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, how is that helpful? Like, that's the worst thing you could do. Yeah. Have a piece of fruit. Don't drink the juice. And right. certainly don't, you know, don't add in, you know, table sugar and think that you're doing your body any benefits. So, yeah. So going lower carb is certainly a focus. You don't have to be ketogenic, but most people could benefit from eating less carbohydrates. Definitely. Like you said earlier, that we could tie insulin, high insulin levels that comes from a high carbohydrate, high processed food diet. We can tie that to any disease. I mean, mm-hmm. even going all the way into the neurological diseases, yeah. the Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, yeah. we know that that is tied to high insulin levels. Yeah. So starting now, I mean, could you get the benefits of fasting while eating high carbs? I guess, but it is going to suck. It's right. going to be hard. It's going to be hard. And I think the other thing that's really important for people to understand, like if you're still getting your cycle every month and you haven't hit perimenopause, again, the five to 10 years preceding menopause, you're going to have a little more insulin sensitivity, if, especially during the follicular phase, first two weeks of your cycle. Ladies, if you are in perimenopause and menopause, you cannot eat the way you did when you were in your 20s and 30s. There's just no way around it. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're Wonder Woman. It yep. is impossible. And so this is the piece that I think is important to tie in about sex hormones, estradiol. So estradiol is the predominant form of estrogen our bodies make prior to going through menopause. So it's waxing and waning throughout our, you know, late 20, late thirties, early forties into our early fifties, average age of menopause here in the United States is 51. And so you could still be getting a period and not ovulating as you're getting closer and closer to that time period. But what I think is really important, this ties into insulin. If you are less insulin sensitive, what do you think happens when you eat that piece of pie or you have that bowl of pasta, or you have a big piece of pizza takes your body a lot longer to bring that insulin back down, which means you shunt off your fat burning and you stay in this fat kind of gaining state. And so I think it's important for people to understand this is why it is critically important to manage and mitigate stress, Mm -hmm. uh, make sure you're getting good quality sleep, making sure that you're not eating frequently, making sure you're eating the right foods. Because one of the mistakes I see is women get into their forties and they drink a lot of wine and they're drinking wine to deal with stress or they're drinking wine because they're not happy in their marriage or they're not happy with their job or any number of things. And all of a sudden they start becoming more and more and more inflamed. And, you know, it's one of those things where I say, if insulin's not working for you in the right direction, 
there are a whole lot of other things that will impact, you know, leptin, ghrelin, blood sugar. I mean, a lot of things that are not going to benefit you. So, you know, heading into your late thirties, early forties, recognizing you got to change things up. And that insulin sensitivity piece is really important for people to understand, because as you start losing estrogen, you'll start becoming more and more and more prone to insulin resistance. I have a wonderful woman that I work with very closely in my practice and she's a breast cancer survivor. She's doing very well, but because she doesn't have the insulin, her insulin sensitivity is off because she's on all these drugs to blunt any estrogen production in her body. And she actually is changing jobs because she said the amount of stress that she's under in a very special role in medicine is so much that it right now at this stage in her life, her body can't manage it. And her insulin levels are just going higher and higher and higher, despite doing all the right things. So um, make sure, you know, those numbers, make sure, you know, what your fasting insulin is. Um, it is not a weird test. It is not a functional medicine test. Right. I'm sure Dr. Amy talks about it, yeah. but I always say, you know, way before your fasting blood sugar or your A1C becomes abnormal, your fasting insulin will start to rise. And you want that within a very tight window. Like I know what mine is. I get it checked a couple times a year, mm -hmm. but I think it's important for everyone to be empowered about that. Yes. And the functional optimal range is not within the standard lab value range. <laughs> Let's say that. So you can be insulin resistant and still not get a little H next to your lab work or, or it's not red saying that you're high. You're, if you're insulin, for me, it's above a six. Anything above yep. a six, I'm calling insulin resistance. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's one of those things where I was taught during my so I did a traditional allopathic medicine route, and then I went on and did a functional program and insulin two to five was ideal. Um, and mine's usually two or three. That's kind of where I fall. But I think it's also important for you to understand, like I've seen women who insist they've done everything and anything, and then their fasting insulin's 18. And I'm like, well, <laughs> we now know why you are not losing weight yeah. uh, because your, your body is, is in this state of stress. So I'm glad that you're doing that work and you're having those conversations. I've actually, I can't, I've been surprised at how many allopathic trained healthcare professionals, NPs, docs are happy to have that information. They're like, thank you. I did not know that. And they, they want to do right by their patients. I think the average person really wants to do right by their patients. They wanted, they want the best information. They want to work and collaborate with individuals like both of us because they want what's best for their patients. They don't want their patients to be suffering. And clearly what we're doing is not working. Like when I say we, like collectively, if we have a population that's this metabolically unhealthy, what we are doing is not working. Yes, exactly, exactly. I, I, I believe that too. I do believe that most docs, and mm -hmm. because even the people that I work with, they'll say, well, you know, I'm working with this nurse practitioner. She really wants to help mm -hmm. me. She just doesn't understand thyroid and hormones and the balance and what to do. And that's okay. I mean, yeah. we, we can guide. That's totally fine. We have to be armed with the knowledge. So yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, here's the irony is when I worked in cardiology, the only real thyroid emergencies we dealt with was thyroid storm or myxedema coma. So the extremes. Yep. And I, I now know more about thyroid than I ever did when I practiced as an NP in cardiology. And that's okay. Cause in cardiology, you're just dealing with extremes and everything else gets pushed back to primary care. But now the nuances 
that I can see. And, and the interrelationship, and let's be clear, I'm sure you probably talk about this, the interrelationship between sex hormones and thyroid. So even sometimes when you get on thyroid replacement, or excuse me, on, on sex hormone replacement, whether it's testosterone, estrogen, or progesterone or a combination, mm-hmm. that can impact your thyroid, not always in beneficial ways. I, I can honestly say that I'm an N of one. Mm-hmm. So my own personal experience, I started estrogen estradiol, progesterone, testosterone therapy. I'm still on progesterone therapy, but uh, my body did not take too well to um, estrogen and and testosterone therapy. And I think it's that we just haven't found the right amount. The point of what I'm trying to make is from the time I started sex hormone replacement, let me be clear. So it's clear. I've been on thyroid replacement for years. My thyroid function, my free T3 and T4 just kept going lower and lower and lower. And my, my, physician's recommendation was always more cytomel, more synthroid, more this, more that. Finally, I just said, time out. Do you think maybe it's the, the estradiol? Do you think maybe it's the testosterone? Mm-hmm. And so sure enough, when I stopped both of those, it started to creep back up again. So now we're heading back you know, to where we need to be. Yeah. So if anyone's listening and they're fearful, I always say it's the end of one. Like, you know, I, I'm sure I'm probably the outlier that that happened to, um, I still take progesterone because it helps me sleep and sleep is really important. I'll be the first person to say, I take my progesterone. I fall right to sleep. Oh, it's a yeah. wonderful thing. Good thing. Yeah. But no, you're not that far off. I've been seeing, I, I know we're kind of side noting, but I've been seeing that in, in my practice too, mm-hmm. the free T3 and free T4 levels going down as we increase medication. But I think with, like you said, the stress, the stress impact mm-hmm. on our sex hormones even if you are not perimenopausal, I'm mm-hmm. seeing 30 year olds with zero progesterone, zero testosterone, or and and then estrogen is either dominant or it's non-existent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, and it's it's interesting to me when you really look at a population. Like I have a woman, and this is why this is another segue, but probably relevant. This is why I'm not a fan of pellets. Mm-hmm. Because I have two women right now in one of my group programs and I looked at their Dutches and then I, you know, shared with, with my other colleague that I'm running this program with and said, this is why we don't recommend pellets because this woman's testosterone level was almost off the charts high on her Dutch. And I was like, yeah. what in the world is she taking? So I'm coming through all her information. I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen a testosterone that high. Yeah. And then what happens is they aromatize to estrogen. And so then the estrogen metabolites are all off phase one, phase two, detoxification, the liver are off mm-hmm. and it's just a hot mess. So you, you need predictability when it comes to hormones. You need to be able to assume that you're going to get a, a, a certain response within a certain window. Like whether you take an oral thyroid medication, we know at a certain point we'll hit a peak efficacy of the drug. We know when it needs to be measured. When you have a pellet, which if you're not familiar with what pellets are, they place them under the skin. And for some people, maybe they slowly get secreted over a period of time. For others, it's like they get this massive release of therapies and then they come crashing down. And so um, definitely something you have to be careful with. I know I got off on a little bit of a tangent, but that's- No, I know. I love it. I love it when conversations just flow, Mm -hmm. but I'm with you with the pellets. That's the same thing I see. I'll see women with testosterone levels of 200. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, that's that's like a low dudes number. So (laughs) yeah, you should probably shouldn't be that high. I think I was 174 when they checked me and I was like, I don't feel good. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little too high. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I don't feel good. Yeah. Pulling dark hairs out of my face. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So going back to the fasting piece, Mm -hmm. what about, because I hear this as well from my patients that maybe they tried even before we started working together, intermittent fasting didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. So can we dive into what they might be 
might have been doing wrong and why people do say that, like, oh, it didn't work for me. Well, I think we have this mentality, and I say we as a society, that something has to work quickly to be effective. So they want to lose 10 pounds in a week because there's a potion, a pill, or a powder that's told them that's possible. And I remind patients, I'm like, listen, one to two pounds a week is the max you should be losing because if it's more than that, it's not sustainable. But we know based on study research that the average, if you take a man and a woman roughly the same age, uh, it's going to take women longer to lose weight. So if the, if the, point of doing fasting or the desire to do fasting is to change body composition, lose weight, et cetera. It's going to take women longer. We, we, we have these hormonal fluctuations, whether you're cycling or non-cycling, we know based on study research, it's going to take women longer, sometimes six to eight weeks. So some of it's impatience, some of it's, they don't clean fast and clean fasting is really as simple as saying you drink filtered water, black coffee, Bitter teas. Bitter means bitter. Bitter means it's not sweet. Bitter means it doesn't have celestial seasonings, apple, natural flavors. It, it's not going to be a foofy tea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times it's the clean fast. There's some fit pro. There's always one or uh, maybe there's 10 a day. I mean, I get a lot of DMs. There's some fit pro out there who said if it's if the calories are less than 50, it doesn't count. Well, yeah, it does because you're eating food. What do you think happens in your body? Right. So I think some of it's just unknowingly breaking a fast, uh, whether it's because a fit pro told them something that they don't know even know what they're talking about. Um, and I have lots of fit pro friends who are very knowledgeable. So I'm not trying to make a, a, a vast comment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of it's the, the lack of clean fasting. I think some of it is hormonal. Um, I think a great deal of it is that, you know, their sleep is terrible. They overexercise. Um, their gut health is a disaster. Uh, they're exposed to toxins. There's so many reasons, but I, I always kind of back it up and say, we need to view fasting as a hormetic stressor. Big nerdy term really speaks to the fact our body benefits from different types of stress. Could be as simple as Amy lifts weights. That puts a stress on your body in a beneficial way. If it's the right amount of stress, right time. Fasting is another one. Um, some of it can be certain types of supplements. It could be the way that you eat. Um, so many things, exposure to cold, heat therapy, et cetera. But if you are super stressed out, you don't sleep, your diet is crappy, you eat lots of inflammatory foods. Um, and I would just say standard American diet because that encompasses so many things. Your hormones are a hot mess because you, you know, you eat frequently. I mean, you're just everything is off and you're not really lifestyle medicine focused, you're not going to have success. So I always remind people that we have this mentality that we want everything quickly. We're not willing to work. We're not, we're we're very impatient, but I remind people that even before you see scale victories, there are so many other benefits to fasting. And so my, oftentimes my response is tell me about what you've been doing. And more often than not, it's, they're not clean fasting. They're not sleeping. um, They're trying to force an outcome. I'm sure you probably see a lot of these limiting beliefs in, in your own client work, but how many people are so convinced something's not going to work for themselves that they will it into happening? Like they manifest that they're not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So I just find for a lot of people, they, they just aren't fasting properly or they're not, um, they're not fueling their bodies properly. If your body thinks you're starving because you're restricting so much, you're not getting enough good nourishment into your body during your feeding windows, that can also be problematic. You know, I, I work with a colleague who says, the way to know that your hormones are balanced is if you are hungry, horny, and happy. And I know that's a little crass, but it really like speaks, yeah, it really speaks to the fact that for a lot of these people, they're never hungry, they're certainly not happy, and they have no libido, which just right. speaks to the fact that there's more to it than just restricting food within a certain feeding window. 
Um, but it is very common that people, once they start making little tweaks, all of a sudden they start having a lot of success. And, and like you said, there's so many benefits besides the weight. We kind of started with the weight because that's heavy mm-hmm. on women's minds. And we tend to really tune in if we just gain five pounds. But mm-hmm. there are so many other benefits that we really have to recognize with fasting, intermittent fasting. I mean, just extending life, preventing mm-hmm. things like neurological diseases mm-hmm. and cancer, um, it, the brain power, like you said, mm-hmm. the brain power that you get. I mean, I've heard that in Silicon Valley, all those guys and ladies yep. will purposely fast just so their brains are on fire mm-hmm. when we're when they're doing that type of work, like coding yep. and yeah. running computer stuff that is out of my realm. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, I tell people I did both my TED Talks and a lot of times when I speak, although lately they keep putting me as the first person in the afternoon, which I'm like, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse, right. but I, but I do those things while I'm in a fasted state because I am so, so mentally sharp and very, very clear. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that on so many levels, it's the things that people don't see per se, that they don't recognize, like even the autophagy, you know, it's this big fancy science term or mitophagy. When we go in and we get in rid of diseased and disordered cells, yep. That's why when people are sick, animals are sick, they don't eat. Like my son had surgery on Monday. And I said to my husband, if he eats, great. If he doesn't eat, I just want him to, to hydrate. Yep. You know, our bodies go in and do all this work. And if we are constantly eating, our bodies, there's all these, you know, there's the migrating motor complex in our digestive system that kind of pushes things through and helps, you know, mitigate exposure to pathogens. And I also think about autophagy and that, you know, we are unknowingly exposing ourselves to, you know, pathogens on a daily basis. It's like, why would we not want to get rid of things that don't belong? Mm-hmm. You know, at a, a talk I gave in October, it's the first time I had spoken publicly about the pandemic in conjunction with intermittent fasting research. And I was, I was talking about how beneficial it can be to fast around, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be around the pandemic, but how beneficial the fast can be in terms of just when you're sick. And I think those are the things, it's not a sexy term. So people are like, I don't know what it means. I don't understand what it represents, but I remind people, you know, brain health is critically important, you know, lessening our likelihood. Why do women at almost a 50% increased rate develop Alzheimer's over men in the menopausal years? And we think it has a lot to do with this loss of estrogen, but also the fact that we have these, this, this reduction in insulin sensitivity. And so, you know, that's another plug for why, you know, brain health is so important. I tell people all the time, I don't want to be that crazy lady. (laughs) I want to make sure that I remain, you know, cognitively intact for the rest of my life, sharp as a tack, but really, really important to be thinking proactively because much like any really good health habits that we embody, you know, with health habits, like good health habits, lifestyle medicine, we don't see the benefits immediately. They're down the road. And so, whereas, you know, it can be completely opposite with unhealthy habits. And so I remind people that it's a long game. Like we have to be thinking long-term, this is a long-term strategy, a long-term lifestyle aspect. That's really important. But I, but I love to see when people, the light bulb goes on and they're like, wow, I came to this because I wanted to lose weight, but I'm staying for all the other benefits. Yeah. Yeah. I love that we could probably go on for about another hour because I love diving into yeah, autophagy and getting out the zombie cells and, uh, and what the benefits are on digestion. We didn't even touch on that, but the bottom line is you have a book, people can get it. It's amazing. So tell people, please, 
where they can find you, where they can order the book. If they're interested in your group program that you talked about, that seems pretty amazing. So, um, and anything else you wanted to share before we go? Yeah, no, thank you. It's been a great conversation. We'll definitely have to continue. I'm looking forward to having you on my podcast as well. I have a podcast called Everyday Wellness, but the easiest way to find the book, um, there are links on my website. It's uh, cynthiatherlow.com. The book is Intermittent Fasting Transformation IF45. You can find that off the website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, and your local book retailer. Really excited. It'll be officially published on March 15th. And so um, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube, and I have a Facebook group, uh, a free Facebook group that's Intermittent Fasting lifestyle backslash my name. Um, but I'm everywhere. I'm even on Twitter where I'm a little bit snarky. You can see a whole other side of me there. (laughs) Exactly. And we'll of course give everybody the links in the show notes, but I wanted them to hear it as well. So super excited for your book to drop. It's going to be absolutely game-changing, life-changing for so many people. So just thanks for bringing this information to the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for connecting. And uh, thanks for all the work that you do educating others about thyroid health, because gosh, there's so many people that are undertreated. No, our work just blends together perfectly. So Mm -hmm. I love it. All right, Cynthia. Well, we will be talking to you soon. Sounds great. So now that you've heard all about the hormone fixer, I'm going to give you a challenge. If you actually listened to this podcast all the way to the end, and you're still listening, you can use the code thyroidfix10, T-H-Y-R-O-I-D-F-I-X-1-0, thyroidfix10 and get 10% off my store. This is only for people that listened all the way to the end. I want to know what you think about my products. Make sure you let me know. Love y'all.